Good morning. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 5 and 6 as we begin here. You may have noticed that my passage is longer than normal. Brian gets chapters with long names and uh, chronological difficulties. I just get long chapters. So far, Austin has managed to avoid both. But his time is coming. <laughs> so we better get with it here. We have a long way to go. It is, there are two chapel, chapters, and I do want to read it all. But we're not going to read it all at one time. Uh, every word is the word of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, uh, for encouragement. And I don't want to leave any of it out. So we're going to read it in, in sections. But before we, we read it, I have a question that's been nagging at the back of my, my brain for the time of this series. Uh, you'll remember that Solomon's temple was destroyed, and we've been talking about in Ezra about how that temple must be rebuilt, but the question is, why? Why is that temple so very vital to the people uh, of Israel, and why do we have to go through all of this stuff that we've been talking about in Ezra and Nehemiah. And I thought maybe an analogy would, would help as we think about it. September 11th came around again this year, our annual reminder of hate and human suffering and horror. The World Trade Center towers crashed to the ground. And so we watched these American symbols of wealth and power go up in flames. Uh, those of us who are old enough now. I have students who don't remember this. It's just history. But we knew that it was a life-changing event, and it has proved to be so. So we have the, the dust, we have the rubble, we have the decay, and, and all of those things that happened around 9-11. There was something else that was deeper that happened. We were attacked on our home turf. One of the greatest cities in the world lost its monuments to modernity and human achievement, and so we felt this vulnerability. How could this happen? Uh, this is the United States of America, the most powerful nation on earth, and we, we, we felt it. We sensed it. We frightened. We're frightened by it that somehow we were vulnerable. The Twin Towers were raised, and when they went down, we had these feelings of insecurity and confidence, and, and we were just, it was something, whoops, more noise here. What was unimagined became real. How could this happen? Now, what if we played a little bit of, of what if with that story and that scenario and imagined that all of New York City was destroyed? leveled to the ground, all proud symbols of wealth and power burned to the ground, and many people who lived through it were exiled and taken away from their home and from their, their country. Well, we, we're glad that didn't happen. But even so, what was the first thought? We've got to rebuild. We've got to do something to put another building up in its place. And so we did. 
Now, no analogy is perfect, perfect, but I want you to travel back in time to the year 586 B.C. Israel was wealthy. It was proud. It was a proud nation. Fame and fortune, world reputation had all been theirs. And for about 500 years, this fabulous temple of Solomon had stood on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. It was the center of religious and economic political life. It was the center of Jewish culture. It was the place where the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God were celebrated. But in 586 B.C., the Babylonian army under King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed that great city. And the people were carried off into exile. And that temple, that beautiful temple considered all across the world as one of the most beautiful ever, was dismantled stone by stone, and the treasures of that temple were carted off to Babylon, symbols of God, and placed in the temples in Babylon, and essentially saying this, our God is bigger than your God. We won. Your God is weak. And so Jerusalem was rubble, a burned-out wasteland. Their towers had fallen, leading questions. How could this happen when Yahweh is our God? Would we ever rise from the ashes and be a nation again? Would we ever have a temple so that we could worship and reinstate our way of life? One scholar put it this way. He said, without any doubt, the most theologically traumatic event of the history of the theocratic people was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the deportation of the covenant people to far-off Babylon. This is the worst. It was not the physical displacement that was so tragic, however, but the apparent disruption of the covenant that had bound God and his people together for nearly a millennium. What would happen now? Was Lord the Lord through with Israel? Was there any prospect that the ancient promises could be renewed and the exile nation restored? And the big question then is, does God still care when our world seems upside down? Maybe you've asked yourself that question, does God really care? Does God still care? And our text answers that question, but it's going to show us through a story that maybe what we perceive as we're going through life is not all that there is to see. There is more to see. Let's ask the Lord to guide us. Father, we're in your word. You have something here for us. We ask that your spirit might open our hearts and our minds, just as we've been singing this morning, that we might behold you. We might understand your glory and your power and your might and the things that you demand from your people. Give us grace to listen well today. In Christ's name, amen. 
Last week, Brian walked us through the persecution of exiles in, in Judah. And the theological point of, of chapter 4 was that God's work will always be opposed. And he gave us some great guidelines on thinking and kind of reframing. You know, when we go through suffering, what should we do? God's people, if they try to live a righteous life, will suffer. Uh, but he, he, he brought it out that suffering always has meaning. God uses suffering to accomplish his purposes. It's never without purpose. And so when we left Ezekiel chapter 4, we were uh, in a place of opposition. You're in, Ezra, let's look at chapter 4, verse 24, then the work on the house of Judah ceased and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, the chronology looks something like this, and there's a slide up here somewhere for, for this, a timeline, one that, that uh, Brian put up last week. In 536, the altar and the temple foundation were built, and there was a celebration. Yay, we're started. And so chapters 3 and 4, part of 4, cover that work and the adversaries of Judah who stopped that work are found in verses 4 and 5. But now 16 years have gone by. 16 years where the temple is not finished. And it's not until 520 B.C. and in the reign of this new king, Darius, that the work started up again. And so I want you to, to think about our story today in four scenes. You got your movie kind of thing in your mind. Here we're going to go. Scene one. Well, we're not going to give you the scenes just yet, but we're going to do it in scenes, and there's going to be a background, so think about the background, what's there. We're going to think about the conflict. Just like any movie, there's always something that comes up, and we're going to be working against it, and then there's going to be this rising tension that happens in the text, and then resolution. So, so that's what we were looking for, a basic story here in, in a movie order. And so scene one, here we go, labeled, two prophets, two builders. That's easy. You got it in your mind? Two prophets, two builders. Ezra 5, 1 through 2, let's read. When the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, or Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Now, there are two names here we haven't seen yet in the book, Haggai and Zechariah. And these two are a turning point in the book because they are God's spokesmen, and they are going to stir up the people new names. They're going to be able to talk to the people about what God wants them to do and to stir them up to do it. And so they play a big role in these two chapters, Haggai, Zechariah. Now, the two prophets, though, add something to the story that's not in Ezra. Ezra is talking about opposition from without, but when you look at what Haggai and Zechariah are going to talk about, they're talking about the heart of the people. One of the problems in the book is not just that they were being persecuted from outside so that the temple was not being built, but they had problems in their own heart that they were not dealing with, and therefore the temple was on hold. 
they became preoccupied with personal business rather than God's business. They were devoted to building homes for themselves rather than building the house of God. And they forgot what they had come here to do. Let me just give you a little background on some of the prophets. What the prophets do, all of that long stuff in the end of our Bibles or the Old Testament that we don't read very often sometimes, those prophets basically have a message that goes like this, and you can see it over and over again uh, in the text. Look, you have broken your covenant. Repent. If you don't repent, then there's going to be judgment. But even when there's judgment, there's still hope. And that's the basic pattern that they have done. And so we're going to find that this is exactly what the people were doing. And they had done it over and over and over again before. Now they come back from exile and they still do the same pattern. There is still hope. Haggai 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, where's Brian when you need him for pronunciations? Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time, listen to what they're saying, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. It's just not time yet. It's, it's the wrong time to do the will of God. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, It is time, or is it time, for yourselves to dwell a paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have shown, sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all the labor of your hands. Now, that's tough love. You broke your covenant with God. You suffer because of your sin. Get busy doing what God called you to do. So Haggai has got this kind of rough message. He's, he's the stick of the pair. He rebukes, he warns, he comes down hard, he's stern. Zechariah, on the other hand, is the carrot approach in our story because he reminds these exiles of the importance of the temple in the years to come, and he promises that the Messiah is going to come, but the temple must be built in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. 
The temple must be built so that God's glory may be revealed. It must be rebuilt so that there is covenant renewal. So Haggai shouts, consider your ways, and Zechariah reminds them, consider your God. Both messages were needed. Zechariah contains an extended section in chapters 9 through 14, just reminding the people of God's covenant faithfulness to them and what he's going to do when the Messiah comes. And so you, you get the flavor of the book of Zechariah and kind of the, the way that he goes about things in a couple of passages. He said, this one you know from Christmas. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, from river to river, to the ends of the earth. He's talking about the coming of the Lord. It's going to be a wonderful day. And then he ends the book by talking about Messiah's reign over all of creation. The Lord will be the king over all the earth. And that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. And that's Zechariah 14, 9. So what happens is that Zechariah reminds them again that the Messiah is coming and they need to get ready for that day. Rebuilding the temple was necessary preparation for the coming of the Lord. Consider your ways. Consider your God. That sounds like a message we could use. Consider your ways. Consider your God. Zechariah reminds them that the Messiah is coming and they need to get ready for that, that day. So now we move from that scene to the next scene. Scene one closes with the prophets stirring up the people and the builders restarting construction after all of these years of delay. But it also kindles opposition. No surprise. We see this over and over again in the book of Ezra. Scene two begins 5-3. But before we read this very long section, let me describe the plot line and ask you to do something. Here's the plot. Construction's going well but the politicians are not very happy. They ask, who gave you permission to do this work? And the Jews answer, we have permission from King Cyrus. Check it out. The governor writes a letter to King Darius and wants to know what to do. And so he didn't stop the work, but a threat hangs in the air. And you feel the ten rising tension in the story. Will the building stop? Will Darius end the work? But what I want you to look for in all of this little story now is this, the words report or decree. So when I read, just kind of check it off in your mind, report or decree. If you like to scribble, I mean, write in your Bible, that's okay too. Here we go. Ezekiel 5, beginning at verse 3. Or Ezra, excuse me. At that time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Boznai and their colleagues came to them and spoke to them thus. 
you issued a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure. Then we told them accordingly what the names of the men were who were reconstructing this building. But the eye of their God was on the elders of Jews, and they did not stop them until a report could come to Darius. Then a written reply be returned concerning it. This is the copy of the letter of Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Boznai and his colleagues, the officials who were beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They send a report to him in which it was written thus, to Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we have gone to the province of Judah, to the house of the great king, which is being built with huge stones, and beams are being laid in the walls, and this work is going on with great care and is succeeding in their hands." Then we asked those elders and said to them, Thus we issued you a decree to rebuild this temple, or who issued you a decree to build this temple and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names so as to inform you that we might write down the names of the men who were at their head. Thus they answered us, saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild his house, this house of God. Also the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them to the temple of Babylon, these King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had appointed governor. He said to him, take these utensils, go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt in his place. Then that Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem, and from then until now it's been under construction, and it is not completed. Now, if it pleases the king... Let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon. If it be that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild this house of God, Jerusalem, and let the king send to us his decision concerning his matter. Take a deep breath. We did it. That's a long section. And as we were going, it's easily summarized. Tatanai challenges the construction with a question, by whose authority do you build this temple? And the Jewish leaders answered with a history lesson. Our fathers, because of our fathers, the God of heaven was provoked to wrath. He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, and he destroyed this place, and Cyrus has given us a decree to rebuild it. Now, the answer points to their relationship with God. They broke the covenant. They failed to repent. God judged by allowing Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the, their center of Jewish worship and culture and to remove the people from the land just as he promised he would do in Deuteronomy chapter 28. But here they are acknowledging and confessing their sin. Maybe they learned something. But then they added that Cyrus the king had given them permission to rebuild the temple. But, you know, isn't it interesting that all these letters are found here, these official letters and reports? And you think, is this stuff made up? Where, where did they come up with this stuff? 
Well, we're going to find out in a bit because we have to go on to scene three. Scene two was that long one where we summarized, but scene three I've labeled musty documents and royal decrees. And I'm going to read the scene, and I want you to again look for the word decree. I don't know how many you found. I I know how many you found. I won't tell you, though. But so far, I know what you have. All right. So you're going to look for the word decree again. There we go. Deep breath. Off we go. Then King Darius issued a decree, and search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. In Ekbatana, in the fortress, which is in the province of Media, a scroll was found, and there it was written in it as follows. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the temple, the place where sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt. Let its foundations be retained, its height being 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits with three layers of huge stones and one layer of timbers. And let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Also, let the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be returned and brought to their places in the temple in Jerusalem, and you shall put them in the house of God." Now, therefore, Tatani, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethbar Boznai, and your colleagues, the officials of the provinces beyond the river, keep away from there. Leave this work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah in the rebuilding of this house of God. The full cost... The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces beyond the river, and that without delay. Whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, lambs, for a burnt offering to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, anointing oil, as the priests in Jerusalem request, is to be given to them daily without fail, that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons." And I issue a decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a refuse heap on on account of this. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it so as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out with all diligence." Was that what you expected? I, I don't think that was what Tat and I was expecting and his cronies. They, that's not what exactly they, they wanted to hear. Now, there are a couple of things here that, that would be easy for us to miss. First, it says that a search was made in Babylonia to find a specific document, but it couldn't be found, and so they moved to search to Ekbatana, and we're thinking, where is all this stuff? Can we have the map up? There we go. I have an orange line right in the middle from Babylonia to Ekbatana up here. That's a straight line. It's about 300 miles if you go straight. But you can see where the dotted lines are, maybe. (laughs) And those were the roads of that day. And so if they were to go to Ekbatana from Babylonia, it's about 500 miles little bit of a journey in that day 
They couldn't find it in Babylonia. They went to Ecbatana. What is Ecbatana? It's the summer palace. It's where it's cool. It's up in the mountains. It's where kings go to hide out when you don't have air conditioning. It's a great place. So here we are, and, and you think about this. There's the, there is Persia, the green. All the, the green is the Persian Empire during that day. That's pretty big. That's a lot of real estate. Where in the world are they going to find one paragraph in one document? But it's an important paragraph in that document. It could be anywhere in the archives of Persia, and they're trying to find it. And they finally found it. And the tension builds. That was the tension here. Will they find it? Will they not find it? You can see the movie. Yeah, I can see it. Harrison Ford's got his hat on. He's looking for this paragraph in the document. But here's the deal. They found it. They had permission from Cyrus to build, but there's a twist. The governor questioned it, the one who was not so happy about it. He was required to pay for it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. He was to supply everything they needed for the building and for the sacrificial system. And he uttered this penalty. Kings can do things like this. We can't, you know. If you don't do it, I'm going to impale you on a post that comes out of your own house. I call that incentive. And so, there we have it. It's a great story, isn't it? Scene one. We'll go back and look at our scenes. We're, we're remembering here. Consider your ways. Consider your God. S get to work. Scene two. By whose authority are you rebuilding this temple? Scene three. Don't hinder the work. And in fact, you're going to pay for it. Love it. Why did he want them to do that? So that they could pray for him. Do you see that in the text? Darius is saying, I want them to build their temple so they can pray for me. No, that was common. That was not a new thing in that time, but very interesting how God moves on the hearts of people to do his work. Now, there's a whole lot of cultural detail there, but we need to go on to scene four. We'll never get done. Scene four, completion and celebration. Um, by the way, there's more decrees in here. You, you might look again. So we, we've had all these sections, decree, decree, decree. Have you been totaling them up? It seems like there's quite a few of them, doesn't it? Decree, decree, decree. Then Tatnai, the governor of the, of the province beyond the river, Shethar Boznai and their colleagues carried out the decree with all diligence, just as King Darius had said. And the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido, and they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus Darius, Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Artaxerxes is down the road a little bit. We've already seen about him in the chronology. This temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar. It was the sixth year in the reign of King Darius. Wow. Okay. Now, perfect. The temple, well, I haven't read it all yet. And the sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered for the dedication of this temple of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, 
And as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats corresponding to the number of tribes of Israel. Then they appointed the priests to their divisions and the Levites in their orders for the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter because Keith's going to get to do that next week. We left him a paragraph, just a paragraph to preach on. All right, so we have our story. The temple is finally completed. There's a celebration. But what you might not know is this is reduced in scale. If you look at the celebration that was given when Solomon's temple was dedicated, there were thousands of animals that were slaughtered. It went on for days. This is a reduced scale sort of a celebration. This is a remnant celebration and people in exile but it's the beginning of something new. A celebration small, but powerful and important. The temple was finally completed, and this temple lasted until the year 70 AD. Over 500 years, this temple would be used. It would be destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, but for all of those years, it was the center of religious, political, and economic power in Judah. So we have a complete story. Two prophets, two builders, threatening questions, musty documents, divine decrees, completion and celebration. And you're saying, well, that's nice. Well, what's in it for me? I mean, this was done a whole, whole long, long time ago. We don't have this temple. We don't have a lot of things. It's a fascinating story. But what does it have to do with me, if anything? Now, several times in here I've asked you to look for the word decree. I don't know how many you counted up, uh, but there are 12. Six in each chapter. Twelve times. Who made these decrees? The kings Cyrus and Darius. But I want you to take through chapter six, and there's a slide for this up here, yeah. We have this Darius, a decree to search the archives. We have Cyrus, a decree with specific specifications for the temple. We have Darius, a decree for protection, a decree for provision, and a decree for penalty. And the words are found decree, 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 decree. And then there's a decree for diligence. Get with it. Now, if, all, if that was all of the data that we had, then we would say that this temple was a result of human permission and industry. They, they pulled it up off. They, they, they got together and they built this wonderful temple. But I want you to look at Ezra 6, 14. Because that alters our whole perspective on what's going on here in this text. You may have missed something that was obscured in the New American Standard Version. The word translated command in verse 14 is exactly the same word translated decree everywhere else. And so here it is in the ESV. 
And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes of Persia, by decree of the God of Israel. That's the first decree. Through human instruments, God used these men to accomplish his purposes. I don't know if you know, but Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Darius, were three of the greatest kings of the ancient Near East. Powerful, rich, but in God's economy, in God's administration, they're petty officials to accomplish his purposes. John MacArthur, I think, says it pretty well. God rules the universe and raises up kings, then pulls them from their thrones when they have served his administration. So the restoration of the exiles to the land and the restoring of the work was a work of God. He had not forgotten his promises. He had not abandoned his covenant. And that's the point that Ezra is making in this passage. God is always at work caring for his people and his creation. And he can move anyone he wants, anytime he wants, any way he wants to accomplish his purposes. You see, this is a story about God, not kings. It's about his people and their obedience to him and how he responds to that. It's about sovereignty. It's about providence. It's about faithfulness to promises. It's about protection. It's about obedience. He's always at work, even when we don't understand, even when we cannot see it, even over centuries of time. He's always, always at work caring for his people and creation. We use the word providence in theological terms. Providence just has that idea that God sustains the world he created and he directs it to its appointed destiny. He's still at work. There are some questions, I think, that we need to ask ourselves when we come to a, a passage like this. Yes, it's a long time ago, but this is also the same God that we worship. He hasn't changed. We don't often recognize God's work until we look back on our lives, and it's the same thing here. Maybe you can look back on your life and look at events and say, I didn't know what God was doing at this point in my life, but now that I look back, he was lining up everything to get me to where I am today. What did God do to care for his people in this chapter? Well, he gave them prophets to stir up people with his word. He caused favor to be given to the elders of the people. He caused people to acknowledge their sin. He preserved an obscure document in the royal archives of Persia to be found 100 years later. He guided the Persians to find a short paragraph in that lost document. He gave favor. By the way, 
I didn't show you something if it was up there. Do you have that slide on Cyrus's cylinder up? There it is. I said, where'd all this stuff come from? There's a picture that's in the British Museum of the cylinder that talks about Cyrus letting the people to go back to the land. It's still here. Amazing stuff. Preserved an obscure document in the Royal Archives. Thank you. He guided the Persians to find a short paragraph. He gave favor to the builders and they built. He lined up the decrees of conquering kings to accomplish his will. He caused his temple to be built and his people to be filled with joy. Despite every frustration, he gave his people success and a new beginning. Did they see all of that? Probably not when it was happening. But when we look at this package, we can come back and say, yes, God is always at work caring for his people. He is sovereign over all things. Opposition does not limit what God wills to accomplish. Do you believe he's in control? We say that, don't we? Yes, we believe that God is sovereign and in control. But do we believe that he is control when life is painful? When life is difficult? Do we believe that suffering always has meaning, that endurance is a virtue? Do we believe that God is moving through kings and presidents to ultimately bring about his purposes, even the bad ones? Do we believe that we are members of a heavenly kingdom and that it is the Lord and lords and the king of kings that we bow down to? Do we believe that obedience to God is always the best path because he knows where he's going and we don't? That's the narrative here, and those are the questions that it raises for us. This is the God who worked in the background to bring all of these events to bear. It's a story about God saving his people. It's a story about God caring for his people. If I had more time, I would talk about the pinnacle of providence, the pinnacle of God's care is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did to pay for the sins that all of us have committed. He is the loving creator. He is the one who cares and works all the time. His text, this text reminds us that he fulfills his promise. He always will. He always will. He's at work caring for his people and his creation, and today he's at work caring for you. You may not understand what's going on in your life right now, but be assured that his care has not ceased. Maybe with the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, we need to consider our ways and spend a lot of time considering our God. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful. It's a long story, but wow, what a story, a story of providence while you're working all these things out in the background so that your purposes are accomplished and your glory is seen and your people are cared for. Thank you for the privilege we've had of studying it today. Amen.
Dismissed.